0: You know, if it's true, if it's true that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, it is definitely the most theological time of the year, isn't it? What I mean is that the heart of what it is we're celebrating at Christmas are among the most staggering theological realities ever revealed to human beings. Is this not true? I mean, what, what can top the virgin birth? What can top the incarnation? What's what's more staggering than the hypostatic union of God and man together in Jesus Christ? What's more theological than the arrival of the Davidic king to come and rule and establish his kingdom on this very planet? You understand, it is the most theological time of the year. And yet, and yet, because of that dreaded curse of the familiar, we miss the theological impact of the songs we sing every year, perhaps. Consider the lyrics again. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the Virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man, with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That is the incarnation, that is the deity of Christ, that is the virgin birth, all together in staggering lyrical poetry. I mean, you think about it, the immensity of those lyrics puts rocket science to shame. Quantum mechanics might as well be long division in light of the God who became man for us and for our salvation. You understand, we're not talking about the ghost of Christmas past. We're talking about the God of all eternity. Who came to the planet that he created to save the very people who sinned against him? I mean, when you consider the staggering realities of Advent and all that it is that we're celebrating and anticipating the king to come to crush the serpent's head, who will retrieve what Adam lost, who will fix what Adam broke. Who will restore what Adam gambled in the garden when he believed the devil's lie? When you consider all of these realities, all of the sudden, Rudolph and Frosty tend to ring a little hollow, don't they? Parson Brown is a mushball compared to the Prince of Peace. Santa Claus is not coming to town. But the great high king and sovereign emperor of the universe is coming to the planet that rightfully belongs to him. And he will restore all things and make them be the way they ought to be. This is Advent. And this morning we arrive at what I call the theological epicenter of Advent because what this is, get this, is the announcement to a teenager that soon in the womb that she would conceive and the baby to be born would be the Messiah to make things right in the world. (laughs) That, That she was the virgin of ancient prophecy. That hers would be the son to crush the serpent's head that in her womb would be wonderful counselor and mighty God and eternal father and prince of peace, which means the offspring of the virgin's womb would be God himself to come and save the human race from the inside out. Because you know, we're contemplating the question and it's a serious question that we're contemplating in December. What child is this? Who is this that we're talking about? That, that left the realms of glory to dwell among the sons of men? What, what child is this born in a barn in a dumpy village? What, what child is this who stumped theologians as a teenager? Who changed water into wine? Who cleansed a temple? Who healed the sick from another zip code? who who raised the dead, who claimed to be God, who was slain for sinners and then raised himself from the tomb. What child is this is the most staggering and significant question in the universe because the answer determines where you will spend eternity. And the answer that Luke provides in our text this morning is among the most detailed and elaborate answers to the question, what child is this? Because we see that through the mouth of the angel, Jesus Christ is the long awaited King and Messiah and Redeemer and Savior to come and make things right in the world. So this morning, that means this morning, Mary not merely gets the surprise of a lifetime that she is going to have a son which was biologically impossible, but that the son that she would carry and birth and feed and raise and love, that he would be the centerpiece of all human history itself. And you see, being infatuated with this son is not merely, as they say, the reason for the season, it is the reason and the meaning and the purpose of everything. So here we go. If you have notes, this is what's on them. Either way, here's the roadmap. This morning, I want you to see five features of the king. Five features of the promised king that do three things. One, solidifies our hope. Two, fortifies our faith. And three, guarantees our joy. That's where we're headed, five features of the king that solidifies our hope, fortifies our faith, and guarantees our joy. Let's begin with part one, which I'm calling the favored virgin, the favored virgin, because you know, you know from last week that this was a busy season for the the angel Gabriel, who was sent by God to earth with messages for two different people, two different people. One was a man, the other was a woman. He was a priest, she was a peasant. He was married, she was engaged. He was older, she was a teenager. His name was Zacharias and her name, you know, her name was Mary and they were complete opposites in almost every single way, except for both were faithful and righteous. Both were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Both were waiting for the Messiah and yet neither one of them had any children and yet both were promised a son. And this son, each of these sons would be a miracle and not to mention major players in the plan of redemption. And so what that means is that Luke chapter one is the tale of two sons. Son number one would be a prophet. Son number two would be the savior of the world. Son number one would be a reformer and a messenger and eventually a martyr. Son number two would be the redeemer and the Messiah and God himself in human flesh. The name of the first son you know is John the Baptist. The name of the second son you definitely know is Jesus of Nazareth. Last week, what did we see But Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, cornered in the temple by an angel? who told him that despite their old age and humanly incurable fertility issues, that they would have a son and not just a son, but a son who would be a prophet and not just be a prophet, but the very prophet described and predicted in the Old Testament. And this prophet's job, you understand, would be to bring about a reformation and a revival and to prepare the people to repent and to relent and to yield their lives in submission to the king to come. And you remember last week, the scene ends in verse 25 with a joyful mother at five months of pregnancy, astonished at the sovereign intervention of God. And it was, it was astonishing. And yet it's nothing compared to birth announcement number two, which brings us one month later to a teeny tiny town called Nazareth, where there lived a teenage peasant girl about to get the surprise of a lifetime. Look at verses 26 and 27. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee, which has the name of Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man by the name of Joseph from the house of David, and the name of the virgin was Mary. This is incredible, you understand. This is not distanced, indifferent, historical filler before it gets to the good stuff, no, that is the good stuff. You understand this is the this is the appetizer before the entree. This is the this is the this is the trailer before it gets to the scene, the, the main attraction. Why? Because it not merely sets the scene, but this reverberates, you understand, with with profound Old Testament predictions that at this time had not yet been fulfilled. Notice in verse 26, one month after verse 25, Gabriel is sent again by God, this time to the sticks of Galilee to an otherwise insignificant village called Nazareth. And you see, even the mention of Galilee is significant. Do you know why? Because in Isaiah chapter 9, it predicts that Israel's hope and consolation would emerge in Galilee and shine like light out of darkness, which is really funny because Galilee is the last place that you would ever expect anything good to come. And yet that's how God rolls, always doing the unexpected. And yet it's not where he's sent necessarily, but to whom he is sent that is important. Notice verse 27 that he was sent to a virgin engaged to a man by the name of Joseph from the house of David and the name of the Virgin was Mary. You you understand what this is is a case of prophetic chemistry. You see, a virgin girl in Galilee doesn't really mean a whole lot by itself, nor does a man from the house of David by itself necessarily mean anything in itself. However, a virgin girl engaged to a man from the house and line of David. Now all of a sudden that gets our attention because what that means is that those are two crucial elements for the fulfillment of prophecy and specifically a prophecy made by Isaiah 700 years before this about a virgin who would conceive and give birth to a son. And this son would be nothing less than the savior of the world. And there's Mary doing whatever it is that young, engaged girls do in Galilee in those days when Gabriel, in the form of a human being, apparently enters her house, and he says this, verse 28, and the angel said to her, greetings, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at the statement, and she kept pondering of what sort of greeting this could possibly be. B, now you you realize that anyone just barges in, waltzes into her house, she grabs a gun or calls the cops, right? But there's something about the presence of this man and probably the appearance of this man that makes her choose a different path. Because you understand, whenever angelic beings appeared in history, they were typically radiant, they were obviously supernatural, and so instead of running out of the house fearing for her life, she stands still, baffled and stunned stunned and perplexed, Luke says, at this bizarre and cryptic greeting given by the angel. And the thing about that greeting is that even that is loaded with significance. Look what he says, greetings, highly favored one, highly favored one, which is fine and I suppose technically correct, but the root of that word, listen carefully, is grace. The word is grace. It's something along the lines of greetings, having been graced one. Greetings, you who have been shown grace, sovereign grace that singled you out and selected you, not just for salvation, but even the conception of the Son of God himself. You understand, grace draws out the reality that Mary didn't earn her status with good works, but that she had been selected by God with sovereign initiative and choice. Do you see? And yet, what's especially puzzling about what the angel says is his greeting when he says, The Lord is with you, the Lord is with you. It's very strange. Do you know why? Because that statement, The Lord is with you, every time, the Only time that God ever said that to anyone in history is when he was going to use their lives to advance strategically his plan of redemption. The only other times that he said that were to Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Jeremiah. And the point is the Lord never said that to anyone unless he was using their lives to to advance his plan in a strategic way, which is exactly what this was. And the grammar of verse 29 reveals that Mary is absolutely mystified. There's no way, there's not a chance that those words apply to her. Because this girl, this teenage peasant girl, I mean, she's a grown woman of marriageable age. She's literally a nobody in a little hick village off the beaten tracks in the middle of nowhere. I mean, from a human perspective, Mary doesn't meet the criteria to be used by God to do anything significant. And yet God doesn't give a rip about human criteria, does he? Rather, he is in the business of putting his worth, his value And his beauty on open display and the particular stage that he had chosen in this instance to do so was the womb of a virgin in a region of a country that many people had assumed been abandoned by God. And that was a stupid thing to assume because the opposite was the case. Because you see, God does not only make his promises, he keeps his promises, which brings us to some of the greatest promises he ever made to his people, which brings us to part two. Part two with the promised son, the promised son. Because you know, like us, Mary's just trying to catch up. She's just trying to wrap her head around whatever this is that is happening in this moment when all of a sudden the angel reveals the meaning of the meeting. Look at verses 30 through 35. And the angel said to her, do not fear Mary For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in the womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of David, his father, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Think about what he says. There's no need to fear, Mary. There's no need to fear at all, for you have found favor with God. And again, the word is grace. You have been given grace, Mary. She didn't earn this status with her piety. She had been selected and elected and chosen, not just for salvation, but even for this for this moment here, to give birth to the Messiah himself. And, and speaking of The Messiah, the king, we look at the first feature of the king, number one. Number one, the supernatural conception of the king. The supernatural conception of the king because look again at verse 31. He says to her, behold, you shall conceive in the womb and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And when he says conceive here, you understand that the implication is apart from human means something radical and supernatural and, and biologically impossible. That's exactly how Mary understood it. Look at verse 34. How can this possibly be? Since I am a virgin answer verse 35, the Holy spirit will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. And that which is conceived in you, which is called holy shall be the son of God. You understand, that's the way. That's the only way that a young woman who has never even touched a man in her life can become pregnant and not just pregnant, but conceive and give birth to God himself and human flesh. So you understand, this is a pivotal moment here in the scheme of God's plan of redemption. This is the fulfillment of the very virgin birth itself predicted 700 years before this in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. And do you remember that scene? Do you remember the context of Isaiah chapter 7? The people of Judah were hanging in the balance Assyria is breathing down their neck. They're looking down the barrel of unbelief. They're going to die. All of God's promises hang in the balance. And in that moment, at moment, it dawned on her that she, and in that context, it was predicted that a virgin would give birth to a son and this son would be the guarantee and the fulfillment of the plan of redemption. And in that moment, it dawned on her that she was the one in the text. That hers would be the womb through whom the one to save the world would emerge. And she never even suspected it. And why would she? Why would she? And yet this, what this does is raise the question, doesn't it? Is why does the virgin birth even matter? Why is this important? I mean, I mean is this really essential to, to have this? I mean, does anything change? Do we lose anything if the virgin birth isn't true? Because I'll have you know that there are many so called scholars and pastors and theologians who dispute this and they dismiss this and they write this off as negotiable and unnecessary. I mean, if the virgin birth is one brick in the wall of our theology, what does it matter if you remove the brick? The wall still stands if only one brick is missing. I mean, what's one brick? And yet, and yet you remove the brick of the virgin birth and the wall teeters and it totters and it crumbles to the ground. And the reason it does is because of two things. Number one, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ was used by Isaiah and by Luke as the most dramatic display of the deity of the Messiah. In other words, Jesus Christ is god and the virgin birth is the proof isn't that what isaiah said that the name of the child would be emmanuel god is with us is not that exactly what the angel says in verse 35 the name of the child would be called the son of god this is god the son the second person of the trinity the whole point of the virgin birth you understand is to get our attention and turn our heads and to see that this, this biological phenomenon is nothing less than God himself in human form. A second reason why this matters, however, is because of what Isaiah called the virgin birth. And do you remember what he called this in Isaiah chapter seven? He called it a sign. This is a sign from God. We want signs. We look for signs. We hope for signs. Oh, that God would give me a sign so that I could know that everything is going to be okay. That's exactly what this is. You don't need any more signs from God. The greatest sign is the promise of the offspring of the virgin's womb, and he has come, and he will come again. And so you see here, you see how this intersects with our faith, do you not? We... to, to persevere in our faith and to make it to the end. We have to have a sign from God that everything is going to be okay, that every single thing that God has promised will come to pass. And we have the sign that sin and death and the evil one and that evil itself will be destroyed and the sign that those things will be destroyed and obliterated out of existence is the son to come from the womb of the virgin. And when he comes, he will eradicate all of those things out of existence. Which brings us to feature number two. Feature number two, the promised king, the sonship of the king the sonship of the king, because notice again, verse 31, he says to her, you will conceive and you will bear a son. Verse 32, he would be the son of the most high. Verse 35, he would be called the son of God. And that's a big deal. That's a really, really big deal. Not because sons are better than daughters, but because the mention of a son immediately triggers and downloads into their minds dozens and dozens, thousands of years of Old Testament prophecy about a son to come on the scene of history. You understand the issue is not biology, it's theology. And to be more specific, it is deity and royalty coming together in humanity, which is precisely what the Messiah is. But we, we struggle with the son language, don't we? It doesn't hit us with any particular kind of weight or gravity or significance. We trip over the shoelaces of that sun language because it seems to suggest that Jesus Christ is something less than God, and yet, and yet, if we only knew what the Scriptures say about the Son, Second Samuel 7 says that the Son to come would be an eternal king and reign forever. Psalm 2.7 says that the Son is the Messiah and King who rules the nations. Isaiah 9.6 says that the Son is wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Proverbs 30 says that the Son comes down from heaven, controls the wind, and rules the ends of the earth. Daniel 7, 14 says the son will receive glory and a kingdom and be worshipped by the nations. Do I need to say any more? The son means everything to the plan of redemption and to our lives. Yes, yes, the baby in the womb would be the literal physical son of Mary. But at the exact same time, he is the eternal son of God who will slay the dragon and get the girl and save the kingdom and be worshiped as god by the peoples of the earth you understand to be the son the son of god you know what that is that's trinitarian language this is this is god the son The second person of the Trinity sent by the Father to save the human race from the inside out. And he has come and he will come again. And I see, I think Mary understood this. In fact, I know she did because later on the chapter, she reveals this muscular theology that understood that the son in her womb would arrive on the scene of history and reign as king and be the rightful heir of everything the Father had promised. And you see, the reason why, and you could feel this, the reason why any of this matters to you is not only because the son who has come is God and deserves your worship and allegiance, but also because of that, this son in the text runs an adoption ministry what i mean is the eternal son with his death paid the adoption fee by which we were adopted by the father and when we put our faith in him he extends to us everything that he bought and purchased with his blood do you see we become sons in the Son, sons and daughters in the Son, And when we do that, we are granted everything that he purchased and bought with his blood. And why that matters to you here is because that means that no matter what you suffer, no matter what you must lose for the sake of Christ, everything that he obtained and bought with his death becomes ours by virtue of his death in our place. Do you see? And my question for you is Are you adopted by the Father through the Son? Has the infinitely costly adoption fee been paid on your behalf? Are you sons and daughters in the Son? Do you belong to the Father? Are you adopted by the Father through the death of Christ? Or are you still hedging your bets, playing a game? Shrugging your shoulders, sitting on the fence like a good agnostic, unsure, just seeking to hope to make life work for you through your own pursuits. And the problem is there is not much time left. There is not much time left. Today is the day to bend the knee to yield in submission and faith in the Son who has come and died in the place of sinners like us. Which brings us to feature number three. Feature number three of the king, namely the significant name of the king. The significant name of the king because you know, you know that picking out a baby's name is part of the fun of being a parent. And yet Mary would not receive the pleasure of doing so. The name of the son had already been chosen. God picked the name of her son who was his son from all eternity in the fellowship of the Trinity. And we see the name in verse 31. Look at the text. You will conceive in the womb and you will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. And you see it, don't you? What makes that statement so profound is that everything the angel just said to her is a word for word duplication of Isaiah seven fourteen, except for the name at the end. Other than that, it's all the same. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7 says, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and his name will be called Emmanuel. The angel says to Mary, you will conceive in the womb, you will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Do you see? It's exactly the same except for the name. What's the point? You see the glory is in the name, the meaning of the names and get this, their are overlapping significance. And you understand when God gives names to people in history, it reveals their identity and their role that they're gonna play in the plan of redemption. Emmanuel, you know, means God is with us. This is the incarnation. This is God in human form The name Jesus means, get this, Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And the point is, Emmanuel is Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us is Yahweh, is salvation. And you see, the overlapping complementary names reveal the identity and the mission of the one to come. From the womb of the virgin. This is the God who became man for us and for our salvation. This is the name above every name. You understand this is the name before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And you have to realize that the salvation that he brings is not merely, it is not just personal salvation of individual sinners. It is that. But it's more than that. He's a greater savior than that. He is a more comprehensive, holistic savior than that. Because you understand that this holy, infant, tender and mild is the one who takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean? It means not only, not only will he, does he save individual sinners from the penalty of sin, but get this, that when he arrives, he will literally suck out the curse of sin. Isaiah 25 says that he will swallow up death forever. That he will extract sin's curse out of creation and make all things be the way they ought to be. You believe that, don't you? And the question is, do you not see the haunting relevance of that moment for our lives today? You see, the point is that what we have to grapple with, what we have to understand is that we don't have to wait until the second coming to experience the life renovating power of the Lord Jesus in our lives today because you understand that that God with us is still with us in and through his word is he not that the god who came near is still near through the sacred text of holy scripture which isn't just some book this is a portal to the very power and presence of jesus christ himself you understand the very power with which Christ will renovate the entire cosmos one day is immediately available to us through holy, desperate dependence upon his word. And you understand, and herein lies, the deepest reason why we should pursue obedience and holiness is because the slow and painful transformation of our lives today are but a sneak preview of what the king will do to the entire planet when he arrives. Do you see And the application? Then the implication is you must get into the text, not as a mere religious duty, not because this is merely the charter of our faith, but because this is Jesus Christ mediates his power and presence to us through the sacred text. And so get into the text, have it, get it absorbed into the bloodstream of your soul and the transformation of your lives will be a theatrical trailer of the kingdom of Christ. And here's the thing, those of you who are parents, as parents, we want great things for our children, don't we? To be great and to do great and to live long and to prosper and have a career and a house and their own family. And as Christian parents especially, we want our kids to treasure God and to live for his kingdom. But what if your son was God and would rule the kingdom? That's exactly what the angel says, feature number four. Feature number four, the supreme titles of the king. Supreme titles of the king, look at verses 32 and 33. He, this son supernaturally conceived, shall be great, he says, and shall be called son of the most high. And the Lord God shall give to him the throne of David, his father, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Do you see it? Deity and royalty again intertwined in humanity. And you notice there in verse 32 that the son soon to be conceived in Mary's womb would be great, would be called son of the most high. Do you know what that is? Those are titles of deity. To to call him great without any qualification is dangerously close to calling him God. And that's exactly what Gabriel is doing. You understand to be great here is not that he's better than good, that he's slightly higher on the continuum of beings, that he's a little bit better than other life forms below him. No, you need to understand to be great is an attribute of God himself. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised of his greatness. There is no end as fully God to be great means that he himself shares the perfection of greatness with the father. Equally deserving of your reverence, equally deserving of your worship, equally deserving of your allegiance. Does he have it? Do, 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 does he own you? You bow down in submission in faith to him. But then you notice, you notice that not only that, he is called the son of the most high. Again, that's a profoundly Trinitarian title. I'm going to get theological on you. You understand that as God, Jesus Christ shares all of the infinite perfections that make him fully God. But you see to be the son doesn't make him less than the father or younger than the father but rather to be the son clarifies his role in the plan of salvation that differentiates him from the father do you see to be the son means he's a different person and that he has a different role than the father let me be the one to come sent to earth to save the souls of men this is what I mean when I say that Christmas is the most theological time of the year because most people have zero idea that what they are celebrating is the glory and the mystery and the beauty of the incarnation God made flesh. You understand, Christmas is for theologians. I'm not even kidding. Christmas makes theologians. And profound, glorious theology is not a deterrent from, but it's precisely the secret to your deepest joy and satisfaction in your life. Which brings us to feature number five. Feature five of the great king, and it's two for the price of one. You notice there it's the sacred throne and the sovereign reign of the king. The sacred throne and the sovereign reign of the king. Look again at verses 32 and 33. The son shall be great and shall be called son of the most high, here it is. And the Lord God shall give to him the throne of David, his father, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You know where I stand, beloved. And you should too, that on the authority of the word of God that we should reject the sloppy eschatology that has wedged itself into the minds of the church for decades. Because our default view of the future, our default view of the age to come of eschatology is some sort of immaterial reality in heaven, some quiet state of of eternal contemplation, togas and harps and clouds. And as I've said before, none of that is in the Bible. Not a word of it. I mean, heaven is in the Bible, that view of heaven is not in the Bible, nor, get this, nor is heaven our final destination. You know that song, this world is not my home? (coughs) They lied to you. The song's untrue. This world will be your home, just not in its current fallen, nightmarish state. Because you understand we, you were not made to be phantoms or ghosts or celestial orbs floating in a mystical realm somewhere. You were made for a kingdom. Tangible, physical, visible, real kingdom, just as real and physical as the Garden of Eden itself. That is exactly what the angel is pointing to. Verse 32, look what he says. The Lord God shall give to him the throne of David, his father. Think about that, the the throne of David, his father. I mean, you understand the gravity of this moment, do you not? With that statement, a thousand years of mystery were instantaneously solved. You know that, right? Because way back in 2 Samuel 7, God made this promise to David. That's in your notes. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. Notice, I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me Do you see this? That is not even kidding. One of the most important prophecies and promises in the entirety of the Bible. Because it describes a a descendant, a, a son who will arrive on the scene of history and have a kingdom and reign forever. And don't you see the Psalms and the prophets agree. Psalm 89 God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will forever establish his offspring. I will build up your throne for generation and generation. Once I have sworn to David in my holiness, I will not lie. His offspring will endure before me. His throne will be like the sun before me. Do you see Davidic kingdom king to come and reign forever? Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, you know it well, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the dominion will rest on his shoulders, and on the throne of David, he will sit, and over his kingdom, he will establish it with justice and righteousness forever. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and do justice and righteousness in the land. Ezekiel 34, I will raise up for them, for Israel, one shepherd and my servant David will feed them. I will be God to them and my servant David will be prince among them and there are more of them. Lots and lots and lots of promises and confirmations of the original promise of 2 Samuel 7 that a a king would come from David's line and rule the earth and reign forever. That's central to your theology, isn't it? That right there makes the entire Bible make sense. And yet the question, the size of the universe is, who would the king be? Who would he be? Through whose birth canal? Would he emerge? When would he arrive? Who is this king to come and make things right in the world? And all of that suspense and all of the drama and all of the fearful tension and uncertainty hanging in the air for centuries was in that moment instantly relieved when Gabriel said to Mary, the Lord God will give to him the throne of David, his father. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And so church, the question is, the question is in all seriousness, who will fix what Adam broke? Who will regain what Adam lost? Who will restore what Adam gambled and forfeit in the garden when he believed the devil's lie? Who will take everything in your life and in the world that is broken and shattered and mangled and backwards and mutilated and who will come and make it the way it ought to be? There is but one answer to the question and it is the virgin-born dragon slayer and serpent crusher and tomb raider and death eater Lamb of God who will come and make things right Church let me ask you In all seriousness you You need to think about this How is your hope And your faith In Christ doing at this very moment How are you doing How are you holding up In this war Called the fight of faith Because that's exactly what it is You feel it don't you Do you not feel a war on your soul every single day? Do do you not wake up in the morning and feel Lord prone to wander? Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. The question is, how are you holding up? Are you persevering? Are you thriving? barely surviving are you dying in your faith slowly slipping away into sin or discouragement let me ask it this way in what ways is your faith and hope in Christ being challenged and even stretched to its limits even at this moment what are the encroaching lies and fears in your heart that threaten your faith what are the competing voices What are, what are the competing voices in your life and maybe in your own mind that question and challenge what God has declared in his word? Because you understand that's how Israel felt. That's how they felt. And yet, and yet you see, don't you, you see how this text intersects and collides with your life. You feel this, don't you? I mean, even if this text doesn't say one word about your particular struggles directly, and it probably does not, it nevertheless provides the theological infrastructure that helps you handle anything in your lives at this moment. Why? Because we have a king who will come and make things right who will raise us from the dead, never to sin or die again and bring us safely into a global kingdom and bring things back like the Garden of Eden, but better than that. This is a king who will make it right. And Mary is rightly perplexed. And she asks a question in verse 34 that is perfectly logical. Look what she asks. How Can this possibly be, since I am a virgin? Literally, I do not know a man. I've never known a man. I get what you're saying, Gabriel. I appreciate what you're trying to do here, but I just want you to know, my mother and I have had the talk. I've read the Song of Songs. I get biology, I know how this works. But all kidding aside, I, I don't think Mary's being caustic Necessarily or or, or skeptical. He, he doesn't condemn her for her lack of faith the way he, the, the way the angel does to Zacharias I think she's legitimately curious and astonished I mean I think she gets that this is profoundly supernatural I think she's asking for security clearance to get an explanation of how this is gonna work I mean, this is pretty staggering. How is this gonna work? I mean, this is I gotta carry this kid. What's gonna happen here? And I think it's really interesting that the answer the angel gives both does and does not make sense Look look at his response. Verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, that which is the holy child conceived in you shall be called the son of God. I mean, you see what I mean, right? How it does and does not answer the question. I mean, this is true. This is how this literally was going to happen. And yet, what does that even mean that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the power of the most high would overshadow her and that that would make a baby in the womb and the baby would be God himself. I mean, it makes sense, but it doesn't. And it's kind of like asking someone, how does nuclear fission work? Well, two nuclei combine together and create a nuclear fission reaction, which is then converted into energy. Do you see? No. I believe that that's true, I believe that that's actually how that works, but the answer is above my pay grade, it doesn't make sense, that's exactly what this is. Because the angel, the angel just described a nuclear fission reaction where the infinite God who transcends time and space and matter would materialize and localize himself inside the womb of a peasant girl from Nazareth. (laughs) And fun fact of the week, When the angel says that the power of the Most High would overshadow her, that's the very same word used in Exodus 40, verse 35, when it describes the glory cloud of Yahweh descending upon the tabernacle and filling it with his glory. It's the exact same word. It's exactly what would happen to Mary. The fullness of deity and the totality of his being would fill the tabernacle of her womb. I mean, this is astonishing. Think about it. The incarnation of Jesus Christ began as a zygote in the fallopian tube of a virgin from Galilee infused with the life of the Son of God himself. And not that we claim to understand that, but it does prove what the angel says in verse 37, does it not, that nothing is impossible with God? And Mary looks this high ranking extraterrestrial being right in the eyes and declares, literally the Greek says, behold, the slave of the Lord may it be to me as you have spoken without even saying anything in reply, the angel just as quickly as he apparated into the room, disappears, departed, leaving Mary to grapple with some of the most staggering theological realities ever revealed to human beings. Because that's what Christmas is and does. You know, a staff meeting this week, we're praying. And Lisa prayed this really profound thing for you. She prayed that we as a church would pause and take this time to stop and think about the deep things. That was her prayer. That's an excellent thing to pray. To stop and pause and think about the Deep things, because you understand deep things of God don't disappear during Christmas, do they? Rather, they emerge with greatest power and they demand our contemplation. You understand, beloved, the secret to a thriving soul is not to avoid thinking deeply about Christ, but to push ourselves deeper than ever into who Jesus Christ is. And so you must make it your ambition, not just Christmas, but every day of your life to make Christ the habitual sight of your soul and the unceasing object of your deepest contemplation, because that's not only the meaning and goal of Christmas, that's the meaning and goal of life itself. Let's pray. Oh Christ we are baffled by the beautiful truth of the incarnation. We're staggered by this reality that we can't fully explain although we can say the words, what it, what it means is beyond our grasp. O oh, eternal God who became flesh, O oh, word made flesh and dwelt among us. We are grateful, we are grateful for the salvation that you have purchased and paid for on our behalf. Thank you for the fullness of your ministry, Christ, that you are fully man, fully God, our sympathetic high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and yet you were without sin. And Lord, what we need, what we need right now, what we need at this very moment, our eyes opened. What we need are our hearts enthralled with you. We need to see you for who you are, O Lord, because our hearts are troubled, our hearts are confused, our hearts are struggling, our hearts are distracted. And so Lord, what we need, what we need from you is to open our eyes to behold your beauty and to savor you and to be satisfied in you. And Lord, Lastly, what we need is we need the boldness and courage to proclaim and declare who you are because we have the most unembarrassing message in the world. Help us to be bold as lions and take and see that Christmas is an opportunity. Christmas is a mission to declare, oh Lord, that this is not the fantastical birthday party of a, of a cosmic being who puts presents under a tree but the reality of God made flesh who entered into the hay and manure of a fallen world in desperate need of fixing. We thank you for that in the mighty and majestic name of Christ.